Each episode of Drinks with Defenders, we choose a cocktail to feature. For the first episode, it was Kayla's choice, and we felt like celebrating, so we chose a French 75. I should say a variation of a French 75. Mine had sparkling rosé, gin in it, because I am a gin girly, but vodka would work too. Simple syrup if you have it on hand. I didn't, so I used honey. Fresh lemon juice, and if you're real fancy with it, a lemon twist. Welcome to Drinks with Defenders. I'm Addie B. Plate. And I'm Kayla Murphy. We're two law school friends turned criminal defense attorneys turned podcast hosts. We're here in this space because we now work in separate offices and miss collaborating with each other. We've been talking about creating a podcast for years where we talk about the complexities of the criminal justice system, the aspects of it that we grapple with, and the importance of what we do. At the end of a long work week, we want to sit down, have a drink with each other, and talk about the rabbit holes of criminal defense, just like we always have. So let's get into it. Cheers. Hello, and welcome to episode one of Drinks with Defenders. My name is Kayla Murphy. I'm Addie B. Plate. And we're wondering like how your week is going. I am having admittedly kind of a confusing one. I mean, Kayla, to you first, how's your week going? Honestly, it's not so bad. Good for you. It's not so bad. I love that. You know how it is in this job. It's like it fluctuates. (laughs) Yeah. The number of cases, like if you have difficult clients, if you have like a stressful deadline. Totally. And luckily for me, I have been... um, I resolved a bunch of cases this week. Good for you. Yeah. It feels so good. I just feel much lighter. And um, like I even had some time to do some CLEs today. Um, CLEs, you guys, what is it? Continuing legal education? Bushmark? Yes. Yes. I have so many that I need to do. Good for you. I'm so jealous that you had time to squeeze them in. That's that's hard to like get them in and with your schedule. So good for you. What about you, my friend? You're a brand <laughs> baby attorney. I am being buried by my caseload. Um, I had my first client taken into custody at a hearing this week. That was hard. And um, I had a day of kind of some confusing lawyer moments. We had a retired judge who um, he's older. So I think I I kind of get soft-spoken in court. I think just being a new attorney, I get a little bit nervous about speaking over people or speaking loudly or just being kind of my typical self, which is loud. So I get kind of quiet up at council table. And we have been told, I think since COVID, that some of the attorneys are being kind of casual. So some of the other judges have been wanting us to like stand and be more formal to kind of restore some of the decorum of the courtroom. This retired judge who is just who was covering a docket today, he was pointing out how quiet I was up at council table and that he could not hear me. So he asked me to like, I had been going up and down and up and down to like say my little spiel and <laughs> he told me that he couldn't hear me and that I essentially sounded like a mouse. And so he asked me to like crank this microphone, like clear on up to my face. And it was just kind of embarrassing, but that's okay. It worked out. And the day was better than 
probably some of the rest of the week. But it's, I mean, you said it perfectly. You know how this job is. So this this week was a little weird for me. Yeah. <laughs> and so warrior getting through it. But um, the the first, and I'm sure Kaylee, you can relate to this. Like the firsts as a new attorney are brutal. Like the first time you learn an experience and it's not what you planned on it being, it can be kind of tough. But I'm riding those waves and um, they're getting a little bit easier. But my caseload's hard. Learning on the fly is hard. And getting feedback that you're taking as you're representing somebody um, is kind of an awkward thing. And it just makes you feel very nervous. I think that you kind of just have to get a little bit desensitized to fear with this job. And and I'm not quite there. But each day is a little bit of a learning experience. On that note, yeah, let's let's get into a different... Enough about me and my week. Um, Let's talk about something fun. Let's talk about... I mean, we should back up. So for our first episode, I think we wanted to kick off with something that we enjoyed doing together. And we took legal professionalism, aka legal pro, together in law school. Our second year, right? That was that was our second year. It's all a blur. That sounds right. <laughs> That's honest. <laughs> it's a good point. It's, it was all a blur. Um, yeah, we took it together, I think, our second year. And I think we liked it. I mean, I, I think I liked it. And I like taking it with you. We were sitting next to each other. And it seemed like every single thing we learned was so counterintuitive to what we thought. And we were disturbed by some stuff and some stuff we felt conflicted by. And I think that's like the hardest part about this job sometimes too, is like the the parts that you feel conflicted by. Um, and so we kind of wanted some examples of that. So to you, I think you had some fun... I think you wanted to start with a fun case that we learned in law school, but I'm going to let you... I don't want to steal your thunder. So you go for it. Yeah. So basically, we're exploring legal ethics. You and I have each chosen a topic to explore and to kind of tell each other about within that broader context of legal ethics. So we're going to talk about some interesting cases and examples. Sorry, my cat is being bad. Kayla's cat in law school got really mad at her and peed all over her bedroom. And I went over to Kayla's house to study. And you had to like completely like... It was like a health hazard. You had to like get rid of your bed. Do you remember that? And it was like shit was hitting the fan and you were so stressed out. And you had rescued this cat. And Kayla's cat has like one eye and is like very scary. It's the same cat. And so um, Kayla's cat like peed all over her in Micah's bed. And I just remember like you were like, we were gone and she was supposed to be watched. And your mattress had to get like completely condemned. So (laughs) that cat is a personality on the podcast and a formative memory of my law school education. Truly. She, 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 <laughs> she's a very, but she's sweet. She's sweet. Her name's Zoe. <laughs> into like this uh, vamp, like this young adult fire series. When we had gotten her, what's it called? House of Night. Did you ever read the House of Night books? I did not, but that is like so up your alley. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. The demon cat. Yeah. <laughs> the demon cat makes an appearance. Okay. Okay. 
Hey, podcast peeps, just a heads up, we did want to take a second and include a trigger warning. This episode will discuss topics that do touch on self-harm, sexual violence, and homicide. We care about you and wanted to flag this for you. If you need to skip or pause at any point, please do. We are working on highlighting an organization to direct our listeners to. But in the meantime, please, as always, take care of yourselves and reach out to someone you trust if this stirs something in you. We'll be here if you ever want to come back. into it. Zoe was so rude and interrupted you. We were we're back on being ethical. 100%. So <laughs> lawyers are, listen, we're obligated to abide by ethical rules. Okay. So these ethical obligations come from, come from a variety of sources. Primarily though, uh, the source that it comes from and the source that we're going to be focusing on in this discussion are the um, American Bar Association's Model Rules of Professional Ethics. ABA, Model Rules. <laughs> yeah, they themselves are not enforceable, but each state will adopt the model rules, sometimes with just slight changes, uh, other times with really significant changes. And we're going to get into some of those uh, in a little bit. So if lawyers don't abide by ethical rules, they could be issued a reprimand. They could have their license to practice suspended. Or in the most extreme cases, they could be disbarred. Uh, some states basically allow attorneys who have been disbarred to get their license back. Other attorneys are like, you're done forever. I have to say, when you were talking about lawyers, like what happens when they aren't, when they don't abide by their ethical rules, I just had that like law and order SVU noise in my head of like, dun dun, about, and it just, <laughs> it doesn't, I, I wish we could just cue that in, but yeah, it's like, it's the thing you hear about that you never want to do is do mm -hmm. anything where you get a bar sanction. And these are the things that land you in that territory is being unethical. I think that's like the biggest scare that you're given in law school is like, you're going to do this and your law license is going to be taken away from you or you'll be sanctioned and or you'll be disbarred and we can get into that. But that just popped into my head and it just made me kind of laugh. So continue, please. 100%. I mean, that being said, though, I think that in our line of work, particularly when you're working with clients who... Um, I mean, like people can accuse you of anything, right? Like, I think sometimes in this line of work, you could have clients who were maybe just upset at the system and don't really appreciate that. Uh, something my boss always says is that we are janitors, we're not magicians, right? And so... You've told me that. You've told me that yeah. yourself when I've had a bad day. You've told me that. I just, you know, they're an investigative body. It's not like just because there's some kind of complaint, you're automatically going to get disbarred, right? Like you're going to review it. It's going to be a whole thing. So that being said, uh, we're going to dive into confidentiality. And we're going to start our discussion by talking about the Buried Bodies case. So this is a famous case that's taught around law schools all across the country in legal ethics classes. And um, Addie and I learned about this case together. You can hear a really interesting... <laughs> take on this case from one of the the main players that we're going to talk about. Um, gosh, I had meant to look into how to pronounce these names and I'm just going to butcher it and I'm so sorry. I'm just going to say Belch and again, so sorry if I'm messing that up. 
Mr. Belge. <laughs> His firsthand of this experience, uh, he did a whole uh, story with Radiolab. Addie, have you listened to Radiolab? I love Radiolab. Right? Have you listened to this episode? I don't think I've listened to the Buried Bodies episode. I listened to Radiolab um, a little bit in law school. And admittedly, it was something I found kind of comforting. So I'd fall asleep to it. And that just is like everything you need to know about me. Because it was just this weird thing that I was like, oh, this is comforting. And I'd fall asleep to it. So I'm sure that I've listened to more Radiolab than I recall listening to. So I might have. But it doesn't stand out to me on remembering listening to this. But although I think I remember you specifically bringing this episode to my attention later because I remember we learned about this case together. So the fact that there's an episode on this rings a bell. This story takes place in the summer of 1973. Um, So New York State was charging Robert Garrow with murder. The state had appointed him two criminal defense attorneys. Which we talked about in a lot of capital cases, having two attorneys is common. And I think at this point in time, there's like a little bit of confusion as to if the death penalty was allowed in the state of New York. But just so people know, it's it's common depending on the charges. Sometimes people have two attorneys. I know that that is most common in capital cases. So for what it's worth, they'll have like a first chair and a second chair. Um and usually for capital cases, you get appointed to, is my understanding of it. Obviously, I've never practiced a, or you know tried a homicide case, so I would not know. But a state having appointed two attorneys is, is not an, a unique thing. Good point, Addie. Thank you for clarifying why that would be. So those attorneys had decided to pursue an insanity defense. And during the course of their representation, Garrow had confessed to them that he had actually committed three other murders, like beside the one that he was on trial for. I love his honesty. <laughs> like that's her about in this podcast is just like creating a open and honest space. So I mean, I love his honesty. You want a client that's going to tell you what's up, but it did unfortunately put his attorney in a little bit of a pickle. And it's like, do you want them to tell you what's up? I mean, maybe not, but like, from an outsider's perspective, <laughs> I appreciate the fact that you have the attorney that's like, or you're, you have the client that's telling you what's going on, I guess. So, I mean, at least it would, I'd rather find out from my client than anybody else, right? I mean, yeah, I guess if we're going to get into it, we can just get into it now. So, like, <laughs> like talk to multiple attorneys about and ask their perspective on. And essentially, the question is like, do you ask your client what happened? And from most attorneys that I've talked to, they've said no. And the reason for this pertains to another ethical obligation, um, which is basically like we can't present false evidence, right? We can't like have our client testify to something that we know is false. We can't allow them to, to perjure themselves. So like if, for example, your client was like, yeah, Addie, I totally stole that car. Like I, I drove to Florida. It's whatever. I went to Disneyland. And then he were to testify and he were to be like, no, I've never seen that car before. You'd be put in an ethical dilemma because you would... Well, gosh, I mean, it's kind of tricky, right? Because it's like, you have to know. And it's like, well, how do you know? How do you know he wasn't lying to you then and is not telling the truth now when he's testifying? Right. right. 
I mean, I think you want your client to tell you stuff that they feel comfortable with telling you, obviously. And if they, they solicit something that is a little bit different than like you asking, because I mean, there's certain things that I'm sure you would rather just not know for being able to advocate for them. And it, I mean, this goes to, yeah, this goes to the, that I think you're going to talk about, but I mean, it's, it is hard. That line is, in, is incredibly tricky. And I mean, just the point I was making and in, in like saying like, oh, the client told him it's like, there's things that you find out about your client that you, it's an evolving thing. You learn things as you're in the course of your representation. And I think it's a little bit better sometimes when you learn those things from your client than learning them from anybody else. Um, depending on, I guess, of course, depending on what it is, but if it's going to be something that's going to come up later, which you never really know, it's nice to know that at the outset and not have it come up while in the course of trial, right? Like that would be really unfortunate instead of, I mean, you get put in the position of like, oh, your client might perjure themselves. Will you also get put in the position of like, what if your client tells you something later that you had no idea or some random witness talks about something that you had no idea. And then you're like, Oh, I wish I would have known that earlier. So anyways, continue. I, I stole your thunder on like getting into it. You should lay some more foundation about what was going on with Mr. Uh, with, with our guy, Mr. Belge and his um, clients. Yeah. So not at all. I mean, I think that you were just illustrating the fine line that criminal defense attorneys have to walk between strategy and preserving certain avenues of defense and ethics it's it's tough right like what what's best like making sure that you're not surprised or making it so that you can have your client testify and you're not knowingly presenting perjury to the point where you have to then like withdraw and it's super awkward and the judge is going to ask why you have to withdraw and you can't necessarily tell the judge that it's because your client lied but at that point the judge you know is probably going to deduce that that's the situation so yeah it's just it's just tricky and interesting and that's why we thought that people might be interested in exploring some of these topics with us so jumping back to our case um so yeah Garrow had Told his attorneys he murdered these three other people. And he was like, and one of the people that I murdered is in such and such place. So that place was a, a graveyard. I mean, <laughs> might as well. <laughs> if you're going to bury somebody, a graveyard, I'm not surprised, but I'm also surprised. And okay, so they go out to this graveyard, right? I mean, your client tells you that. What do you do? Well, his attorney was like, well, damn, I guess I gotta investigate, see what's up. So he goes to this graveyard and sure enough, he finds this poor murdered victim's remains. And I think it's important to point out, like, this is the 70s. A lot of the attorneys were also wearing the hat of investigator, right? Because a lot of offices have investigators now that go off and, and do those things for you. But your client tells you something, you want to look into it. You're now Sherlock Holmes and this person's attorney. Like, you're, you're wearing hats. And I guess that's the position Mr. Belge found himself in, right? I mean, I, it appears so. Yeah. <laughs> when he was doing the thing. 
but but what does he do after this? What does he do after the discovery? Nothing. He he doesn't report it to the authorities. He doesn't contact anybody. And he and his co-counsel retain that information until trial. And then at trial, the attorneys end up presenting this information of the disclosure of the three additional murders and the discovery of the body to the jury to consider in order to help, you know, support their insanity defense. And people were outraged when they learned that this attorney you know, knew about this poor murdered victim's body and just like didn't tell anybody about it and just like waited to bring it up until it suited his client's interests. So the state ended up indicting this lawyer on two charges. Um, The laws under which they charged him are a little bit wordy, but basically they are relating to like proper burial and not disclosing the death of somebody when there's not a health, um, like a health person on site, medical professional, not health person. The same thing. (laughs) (laughs) So Mr. Schultz defended himself against these charges on the basis of attorney-client privilege and attorney-client confidentiality. The court agreed and they dismissed the charges against him. So, uh, Addie, thoughts, feelings? Do you remember learning about this case? I remember this case. And I just like, I think my first reaction was, it's a bold move (laughs) to be like, you know what? If there was ever a time to like share this secret, it's in front of a jury. Like that I always thought was so interesting. Like, I'm just going to hold all this information and I'm going to build this into my defense and I'm going to present that to a jury. Because, I mean, I guess I... The theatrics of it are fascinating and I would have loved to have been in that courtroom. But I just like, if there was ever a time where you really need to be intentional about the evidence you put on, I think it's then. And so I just thought that was so funny that that's like the choice that this attorney made. But then you go back to the issue of this attorney is then asserting he disclosed this information that really wasn't his to like disclose, right? Because we always know that the client has, it's their privilege, right? And he disclosed it and then was like, oh, I'm going to fall back on this privilege to, and this confidentiality to protect me against these charges. And something about that also didn't sit very right with me. I thought the whole case was so odd. It's so counterintuitive to be like, oh, I'm going to defend a murder charge with these additional murders. Just that on its face, I thought was fun and interesting. But um, I don't know. I didn't... I, I, I remember it being like one of a few cases we learned where there was like a buried body involved, <laughs> right? Because there was also, I think, that case where that person had like their buried body at their own house or something like that. So like there's like a sequence of buried bodies that like stick out to me. Um, from this class, but I don't know. I just felt like it wasn't the best strategy from what I would think. And also it just didn't sit right in terms of being like an ethical attorney. But Kayla, what what did you think? I mean, you you picked this case. So what do you find so interesting about it? Well, to be honest with you, it's been like years since I've listened to that Radio Lab episode. I want to go back and listen now after um, you know, having having taken notes for this script. I didn't want to like accidentally taint my my research with um with his account and his account is certainly much more detailed and worth listening to 
And you can find Radiolab episodes anywhere where you can find this podcast, right? Like Spotify, Apple, Apple Podcasts. Um, but it's definitely worth checking out. Their stuff is so good. And I didn't mean it in like a it helped me sleep, but it's soothing, like it's educational. And I feel like the sound quality of the podcast is always really good. And I just love something that's informational that I can fall asleep to. I think that was like a habit that I got into in law school. And I found... Because I think they have some stuff too about like some civil rights cases and stuff, if I remember correctly as well. But um, they have some really interesting episodes and I would just recommend. So I echo that, Kayla. Go find their stuff. It's great. For sure. When Addy, when you and I were discussing this case... Um... Previously, and you were talking about like how seemingly strange of a move that was to bring it up at trial. I certainly agree with you that on the face, it seems like a really strange move. And I am excited to go back and re-listen to that episode and like, you know, just like hear why exactly he made this decision. But it was my assumption that he knew what he was doing. And he perhaps believed that the evidence was so strong against, you know, Garrow that this was the best shot that Garrow had at, I guess, okay life, right? I don't know, maybe to live out the rest of his days uh, in a mental hospital. Because I think that if you're found guilty by reason of insanity, you can spend up to the max in a mental health facility. Is that right? That's how I remember it too, but I am not sure if it's like if that's described by state statute. Um, if different states have different recommendations on that, and I and I feel bad for not knowing a clear an- answer on that, but that is my understanding. And to be honest with you, Kayla, I do not remember what Mister Garrow's sentence was in this case. Um, I do not know what he got in terms of what happened at trial. Will you look it up? Yeah, of course. I'm looking. I don't know if we're going to find it. Um, He was convicted and he was sentenced to 25 to life in prison. So the insanity defense wasn't successful? I am trying to... I should have looked this up. I'm sorry my internet is going. Oh, the funny thing I'm finding too is that it says that the attorneys held a press conference after the trial where they had admitted that they had known about the location of the of the missing women for six months. So I guess what happened was like during direct examination, Bell just his client a question that I think kind of sparred this. And then it kind of also proceeded until after trial, which is even stranger, to be honest with you, I think. But it seems as though he was sentenced um, to 25 to life. I do not know if his insanity... Um, it says the prosecutor refused to entertain the plea bargain for the mental hospital. That's all I see. Interesting. Yeah. Well, Very interesting. Let's dive into a little bit more why the court rules that it, the way that it did as far as siding with Mr. Belge and his attorney-client privilege and dismissing the yeah. Basically, attorney-client privilege and the ethics rules regarding confidentiality are two different governing principles, uh, both of which attorneys must abide by. And Addie, 
Uh, when we were talking about this previously, you mentioned a really good analogy, which I just loved. Okay, this is an embarrassing time to admit this, but if there's a good time as any, I guess it's now. To become a lawyer, you actually have to take exams on your legal ethics. And so you have this exam you have to take for the class that Kayla and I mentioned, and you have to pass that class. And then along with the bar exam, there's this portion of, I guess it used to be in some states coupled with the bar exam, but it's just on your professional responsibility and your ethics. And it's called the MPRE. I did not pass the MPRE the first two times I took it. So I took it the third time and passed. Yay. And um, when I was studying for it the third time, they were explaining this analogy. Um, I, I should back up. I had used Barbary, which I used to study for the bar. And I liked it for the bar. I did not love it for the MPRE. I used Famous instead. Um, per the recommendation of one of the attorneys in my office. And the famous instructor kind of used this analogy of like a saddle, which I think is to the donkey portion that you just (laughs) caught at, Kayla, of like this saddle that um, is confidentiality. Like, I guess maybe the horse is back and then attorney-client privilege kind of sits on top of it. And it kind of just helped add a little bit of like, an understanding as to how those two overlap and intersect because I think I was a little bit confused on that in terms of the rules previously. Yeah, that was something I picked up from that study um, service. And and it's free. Their MPRE class is free. If anybody is needing um, an option to study for the MPRE, this is not me pitching them. I just understand that uh, becoming a lawyer can be really expensive. And it it was a free service that I received. um, And I... I, uh, enjoyed it and I was successful and that was a big part of my studying. So honest props to them on that. But um, yeah, that was the analogy. So thank you. Great resource to share too with our listeners. I'm sure they'll really appreciate that. So I guess I'm going to start with the saddle on the... I'm going to call it a donkey. I want to speak donkey. The saddle on the donkey's back. So um, attorney-client privilege. So it's an evidentiary rule. The client is the person who holds this privilege. So that means it's the client alone who has the ability to waive the privilege. This evidentiary privilege is, as we were saying, more narrow than the ethical rules on confidentiality. An evidentiary rule, like rules of evidence, the big purpose of that is to basically, I guess, contain what comes in at trial or in proceedings where the rules of evidence apply. You mean attorney-client privilege? Well, just like what an evidence rule is, right? So like yeah, things that are subject to the evidence rules, it's basically like what is allowed to be brought forth mm-hmm. in court. And so when you're talking about an evidentiary rule, attorney-client privilege is an evidentiary rule because it provides protection of what is and isn't admissible. And so... I think that's maybe a little bit foundational. So attorney-client privilege is not... The purpose of it is that it's just to basically curtail evidence that can come into the court, right? And like what you can and cannot testify to, what you can and cannot be required to testify to. Absolutely right. Well said. This evidentiary privilege basically only pertains in certain circumstances. So it only applies to confidential communications between the lawyer and her client that pertain to legal matters. So 
the rule does have a few exceptions. Uh, number one, lawsuits between a lawyer and her client. Two, when an attorney is an attesting witness for a document. Three, um, to provide basic information regarding representation. And for the crime fraud exception, so this is where the client is trying to use or has used an attorney's services to perpetrate a crime. This evidentiary rule acts as a safeguard, right? Like you were saying, Addy, about like what's allowed in court and what's not. So it's a safeguard to keep these types of protected communications out of court. So if, for example, the state were to try to compel a defense attorney to testify about confidential communications with her client pertaining to legal matters, that attorney could assert this attorney-client privilege in order to protect herself against being compelled to testify about the contents of that communication. The ethics rules on confidentiality Reality, on the other hand, the donkey is governed by model rule 1.6. So this rule basically applies to most information learned by the attorney during the course of her representation. So as opposed to the evidentiary rule that we just talked about that only applies to confidential communications about legal matters between the attorney and her client. Under rule 1.6, an attorney is prohibited from revealing information related to the representation of a client unless an exception applies. Exceptions are as follows. So number one, the client gives informed consent. Two, the disclosure is implicitly authorized for purposes of carrying out the representation. Or three, if the disclosure is permitted under this rule. Disclosure is permitted and not mandated to the extent the lawyer reasonably believes is necessary to, one, prevent reasonably certain death or substantial bodily harm, two, to prevent the client from committing a crime or fraud if it is reasonably certain to result in substantial injury to the financial interests or property of another, and the client has used or is using the lawyer's services in furtherance of that crime or fraud. Um, so three, similarly, if the client used the lawyer's services in furtherance of a crime, the lawyer can disclose to prevent or mitigate or rectify substantial injury to the finances or property of another that is reasonably certain to result or has resulted. Four, to secure legal advice about the lawyer's compliance with the ethics rules. Sounds kind of funny because it's like the lawyer's receiving legal advice. It's usually for that exception, it's like a lawyer wants to talk to another lawyer about how to handle an ethical issue that they think might be present in their representation. It sounds kind of clunky for a lawyer to receive legal advice about their own representation, but that's why. So Yeah, and I mean, it's necessary. Yeah. Like... We're always just toting these different lines and you just have all of these different factors to consider. Right. And I mean, the answer isn't always black and white. And you're constantly like, am I doing this right? And you get presented with issues and you're like, somebody else, I might need a second opinion on this because I feel like this issue came up and I'm not sure if I'm navigating this in a way that is 
one, protective of my client, but two, in a way that I'm complying correctly with my obligations. And sometimes those are re- that's a really hard line to navigate. So that's why that exists. Five, if the lawyer, I enter in a controversy, uh, the lawyer is permitted to disclose, um, you know, information in order to establish a claim or a defense. Ooh, it looks like, or to establish a defense to a criminal charge or civil claim against the lawyer based upon conduct in which the client was involved, or to respond to allegations in any proceeding concerning the lawyer's representation of the client. Six, to comply with any other law or court order. Or seven, to detect and resolve conflicts of interest if the revealed information would not compromise the attorney-client privilege or otherwise prejudice the client. So in any case, a lawyer has to make reasonable efforts to prevent inadvertent disclosure or unauthorized disclosure or unauthorized access to information pertaining to the representation of a client. Uh, Circling back to the buried bodies case and with these rules in mind, we can now kind of understand why the court ruled the way that it did. There was no exception under the rules that would have permitted disclosure. We could imagine, though, that if we changed some facts around, the outcome would likely have been different. So if, for example, Garrow had told his lawyers that he had like abducted somebody and was holding them hostage in like a remote cabin without food and water, and he was now, you know, in the police station under arrest and like this person's probably going to die, right? Then under the ABA model rules, the attorneys would have been permitted to disclose to authorities the whereabouts of of that victim, but they wouldn't have been mandated to, right? And they would have been permitted to in order to prevent death or substantial bodily harm. Here, unfortunately, um, the victim had already already died, right? So they wouldn't have been preventing any death or, or substantial bodily harm. Uh, That had already happened, unfortunately. Interestingly, Washington State has made their own change to the model rules. And they made disclosure under these circumstances where death or substantial bodily harm um, could happen mandatory. And uh, Addie, you practice in Idaho. Yes, I do. So I looked up, yeah, (laughs) rule 1.6. Idaho makes disclosure to prevent reasonably certain death or bodily harm permissive. So models the model rules. They also have a section where it allows disclosure to prevent a client from committing a crime. And it also includes disclosure of a client's intention to commit a crime. Uh, Washington also allows disclosure to prevent a client from committing a crime. It's a significant variation from the model rules, right? They have like the crime fraud exception. Right. And that ends, right? Like if they're using you basically to, right. to commit crime, but just like straight up, if your client, if you think your client's going to commit a crime, you can tell on them. I don't know if that really fosters it's, a very it's so interesting too because it's like at what area of just like your client talking about something does it rise to the concern where you're like oh they might commit a crime and then seriously what, what course of action do you go with right so it's just that's an interesting i remember when you told me that you found that i was like oh that's very interesting because it just seems so 
honestly counterintuitive to be like, oh, I'm going to just talk about this thought I think my client is having. Yeah. It's just interesting. I think the thing that is so weird about the Idaho adoption is like, like I said, how do you know what intent to commit a crime is? How do you feel? How do you feel like you're betraying this trust that your client has then built with you to then say to someone else, I think they're going to do something and potentially get them in trouble? I think that representation really requires a level of trust. And um, maybe they've, they're confiding this thing in you that might present concern, but who knows if they've told anybody else this. So at some point, I think being an attorney, you wear a lot of different hats. And I think a hat you wear is just a confident, being a confidant sometimes where they're talking to you about what's going on in their life and what happened. And then you know, how you're you're working together on navigating something that they're going through. And maybe they say something that causes some concern. And I think then you have to exercise your own judgment on like what that concern rises to. And I think I would second guess my own opinion on that. Like, hey, my suspicion of this person wanting to commit a crime, unless it's explicitly clear that that's the case, I don't know if I I would be so hesitant to like feel maybe that 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 was their intent. I mean, it it depends on your relationship with your client. And I think that that just puts you in such a hard position in terms of assessing your relationship with your client. Um, And and I feel for attorneys that, you know, that that happens to where your client tells you something and maybe you, they really are being honest with you because they trust you and who knows what else they have going on. And, um, then you're put in a position of having to make a decision on how what's their best interest and what is your role in in advocating for them. Absolutely. I think about a couple of different things when considering this provision of the rules. So I consider like the degree of the crime and also like the degree of certainty, right? 100%. Like, and, and who are we to judge that? You know, yeah. like at the end of the day. And we're dealing with people when they're so vulnerable and they're yes. so upset. Like, yes. I can't tell you how many clients I have who are just like, so just pissed off at like... Yeah. Life. At life. System and the criminal justice system, you know? And it's like, and people are or angry, you know, like, I don't, it's like, I don't know, how do, how do you know when like they actually present some kind of like danger to people? It's just, I hate that. I hate making those types of calls. I feel like I'm just, there's no easy answers. And it's I, kind of, I, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I think it tugs at this like constant push and pull that you have in every aspect of representation where you have these other foundational principles of acting in your client's best interest and also acting in the manner in which your client wants you to. Because your client is the pilot at the end of the day, right? Right. And you're just kind of the navigator in terms of like helping them get to outcomes that they want or what they're where they're trying to go. And that? and it's kind of hard because I feel like if you're then put in a position where you're taking over the steering wheel and flying the plane, it's a little bit difficult. And and that's hard. I think that just 
though that specific issue, that specific adoption of the rule really pushes that just kind of tension that you experience as a defense attorney in every aspect of decision-making that you do. I also wonder, I mean, talking about that fine line, like, and considering that in conjunction with this rule, I wonder if like a criminal defense attorney disclosing that her client told her that they're thinking about committing a crime would also potentially open her up to some kind of like liability with legal malpractice, or if it could potentially like interfere with one of the other rules, right? Like, I don't know. It's just so sketchy to me. Yeah. And what if they're, you're the only person they've told that to, and then what happens if then they actually do commit a crime and then you're like having to testify Yeah, and like, it's just, I think it just becomes a very, I don't know what you do. And so, um, but then you could say attorney client privilege. And and, well, I guess as we just learned, but I mean, I, it's, it's hard too, because it's like, what if the case that you are representing them on, you are, you know, an appointed counsel in that case, what happens with your representation in that other case? And then, you know, conflicts that would then continue if you're working in a space where you're in an appointed position, like in a PD's office, then, you know, your conflict continues in certain aspects as well. And so it just, it can really create, I think, a little bit of a a spider web in terms of just all the other issues that could be unearthed by just sharing information that your client has confided in you um, that you otherwise wouldn't. Absolutely. Okay, so kind of switching gears here. So the client dies. Now what? Now the client's dead. (laughs) What can you do? Like, can you... Are they still your client if they're dead? (laughs) Are they still your client? The people want to know. I want to know. (laughs) Our next story takes place in North Carolina in 1984. Roland and Lisa Matthews were murdered in their home. Roland had been involved in a cannabis trafficking business. And investigators believed that three men who were also involved in the operation were responsible for the brutal slayings. Now, two of the three men were tried for the murders, while the third was granted immunity for his testimony. One of the men who was tried for the murders was named Jerry Cashwell, and he was represented by Staple Hughes. During the course of Hughes's representation of Cashwell, Cashwell confessed multiple times that he was solely responsible for the two murders. He ended up pleading guilty but did not admit that he was the only person who committed the crime. So his attorney is the only person that knows that. Right. And so like there wasn't specific language in the plea that established that he was like the sole perpetrator of the murder. Sole responsibility. Cool. Okay. Meanwhile, we've got Hunt. He is the other man who's on trial for these murders. Wait, back up. I don't know if you know this, but was the third person given immunity for like testifying against the other two like so there's three Cody's right one gets pleas now we're dealing with Hunt and then the third was given immunity for his testimony right so he's just like out of the picture and so now we have 
this other guy on the hook. That's what's going on, right? Right. Okay. Okay. So meanwhile, Hunt is also being tried for the double homicide. And his attorneys ended up subpoenaing Cashwell's two attorneys, uh, one of which was Hughes, who we met a little earlier. We're friends now. Yeah. (laughs) They were trying to get those attorneys to testify about, you know, how Cashwell confessed that he was the sole perpetrator. They wanted to, to hear about those conversations in order to defend their client. And of course, um, Cashwell's attorneys invoked the attorney-client privilege evidentiary rule to protect them from having to testify. And ultimately, Hunt was convicted of the two murders and the court sentenced him to two life terms. Okay, so fast forward, we're in 2002. Cashwell had completed suicide while incarcerated. And his attorney, Hughes, had uh, been grappling with this situation, right? He really believed that the other guy, Hunt, was an innocent man because like his client had straight up told him that he's the only one who had killed these people multiple times. And he believed him. And so he really thought like Hunt is an innocent man who's been sitting in prison for a crime that he didn't commit. Um, and now his his um, late client um, has passed away. So he's like, okay, well, maybe maybe now I can make some moves on this. So he's thinking about how he can help. He ends up reviewing some cases. He looked at this one case from the North Carolina Supreme Court from 2004 called Miller. Basically, the court held that it could override the attorney-client evidentiary rule in limited circumstances. Those circumstances being when the client died and the communications between the client and the attorney only pertained to a third party. And second, when the communications would have impacted the interests of the client, the court can still override the privilege if the information basically would not subject the deceased client's estate to civil liability, and also if the disclosure wouldn't harm the loved ones of the deceased client or the representation. So he's reviewing these legal ethics rules. He's looking at these court opinions, and he was like, okay, looking at all this stuff, I think I can disclose this ethically. Basically thinking like, look, this is fine under Rule 1.6 because, uh, you know, the harm of a lifetime in prison for an innocent person is certainly, like, substantial bodily harm, right? Right. Like, that's the prong that that he was thinking the exception fit into. He was also thinking about the Miller case, and he was thinking that, you know, his client passed away, basically. This isn't going to hurt his representation because he'd already been convicted of murder. So like, what did it matter if he did it by himself or with another guy? He was also thinking that his estate wasn't going to be subjected to any type of civil liability because by essence of him being appointed a public defender, he was indigent, which means of low means by the standards that the court uses, which is a certain percentage under the poverty guidelines typically. And so he contacted somebody involved with the Innocence Project. He tells them the story. They're like, oh, dude, we already have a file on this guy. Let's do it. Let's get rolling. So they get a hearing set up. Our guy's about to testify. Hughes is up there. He's on the stand. He's ready to speak his truth and like lift himself of this burden considering he didn't say anything at the previous hearing mm-hmm. and he was like holding himself to not talking about it previously and it's like oh i now have this chance 
Right. Yeah. So right before he's about to testify, the judge who's residing over the hearing warned him. He's like, dude, if you do this, I'm going to report you to the bar. This isn't cool. And he's thinking like, whatever, this judge like doesn't get it. This is still stressful, but like, I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. I researched this. I think I can do it. So he, he follows through. He testifies. Then the court ended up excluding the testimony as a breach of attorney-client privilege and also as inadmissible hearsay. So basically all of that uh, good work kind of didn't really matter. And of course, the judge was like, yeah, and you're getting reported to the bar. So Hunt ends up appealing this decision to the North Carolina Appellate Court. They denied this petition. They're not interested. He appeals again to the North Carolina Supreme Court. They also reject uh, the petition. And I mean, as of the writing of this book where I got this story from, um, Lawyers Crossing Lines by Michael Siegel and James Kelly. I I mean, he's he's still in prison, right? Hunt is still in prison. So um, as for Hughes, though, the Bar Disciplinary Committee ended up dismissing the complaint against him. We don't know their reasoning, though, because the opinion wasn't released. It wasn't made public. <sighs> there we are. It's a depressing story to end on, but one that I think the complexity these these issues. Addie, you're going to talk to us about a really interesting topic, and I'm really excited to learn more about it from you. Um, you're going to talk to us about prosecutorial ethics, right? I mean, yeah, Kayla, you were talking about responsibilities that lawyers have. And I think it's really important to point out that prosecutors are lawyers who just have a couple additional responsibilities that they have to adhere to as specific lawyers that um, prosecute people and essentially represent the state in criminal proceedings, sometimes in civil proceedings. But usually when we think of um, prosecutorial m- misconduct, at least for me, like my mind and for the purposes of the podcast goes to the burden that they have in terms of their job and responsibilities with like evidentiary rules and stuff like that. Most of the rules that I'm thinking of fall under what Kayla referenced earlier in terms of the ABA model rules. And the one that really comes to mind is model rule 3.8. That is, of course, adopted and mirrored in state ethical rules as well. Rule 3.8 essentially outlines the special responsibilities of a prosecutor. There are typically four different types of responsibilities that are associated with prosecutorial duties. I guess to put it in a different way for ethical violations that are primarily associated with prosecutors. The first would be failing to disclose exculpatory evidence. I can talk about that a little bit more in a second. Introducing false evidence would be the second, using improper arguments, and then discriminating in jury selection. For those of us who practice law, and I guess who went to law school, I would say for what I was talking about with failing to disclose exculpatory evidence, my mind kind of goes to Brady v. Maryland. Um, I have like flashbacks of my criminal procedure professor cramming that case down our throat and just talking about the things that a prosecutor needs to like turn over to the defense. Um, in terms of like discovery. And usually, I mean, to just water that down, it's things that would point to the innocence or guilt of an accused, right? That's like the simplest way of explaining that. Um, That's an extremely important case. 
Um, I'm going to kind of leave that summary and not do that case real justice by by giving you that little short note on it. But um, that's really the thing that sticks out in terms of responsibilities of a prosecutor to me. Also kind of off of that too is prosecutors have the um, duty to also provide impeachment evidence. So anything that could uh, basically discredit testimony, um, prosecutors have to turn that over to. That is something that would make like a witness not seem credible or just kind of cast some shadow of doubt into credibility that could be provided during the proceedings. Yeah, like I said, it's just evidence that is needing to be turned over that's material to the guilt, innocence, or punishment of uh, an accused. It's not the most fun to talk about when you talk about it that way. I think some of the more fun cases where I think of prosecutorial misconduct are usually when there's like a big scandal involved. Um, And Kayla and I, when we were originally talking about this, we were talking about the Duke University lacrosse case. And, And why that kind of came up is that usually when you think of prosecutorial misconduct in a way that like, you know, alarms go off in the mind of a criminal defense attorney is when a prosecutor has been found to do something that everybody is just shocked and thinks is unethical. The Duke University lacrosse case is, I think, a little bit more popular in like pop culture. It it brought a lot of like controversial topics to the surface in terms of like legal news. Long story short, I like to refer to the Duke University lacrosse case as the rogue prosecutor. And that's because another prosecutor called the prosecutor that went rogue, essentially, called that person the rogue prosecutor. So it was kind of this funny commentary of another prosecutor shaming this other prosecutor. So what happened was in 2006, three members of the Duke University lacrosse team found themselves facing rape charges. The alleged victim in the case accused the three student athletes of raping her at a party that had been hosted at the captain's residence in spring, I think it was March 2006. Following year, and like to jump into kind of the sauciness of what happened, the North, we're back in North Carolina, I guess it's the theme today. In June of the following year, the North Carolina State Bar ordered the original, I believe, trial court prosecutor to be disbarred after the bar's three-member disciplinary panel unanimously found him guilty of fraud, dishonesty, deceit, or misrepresentation of making false statements of material fact before a judge, of making false statements of material fact before the bar investigators, and of lying about uh, withholding exculpatory evidence. It was the attorney general who ended up calling the original prosecutor, Mr. I'm totally botching his name too, I'm sure. I think it's Nifong, if I have that, if I have that correct. I that's a terrible pronunciation. N-I-F-O-N-G. Yeah. Yeah. He called him the rogue prosecutor. But there were some very odd facts about some of the evidence that had been presented in the case some of the testimony um, from the alleged victim and her friend. The big thing that was, I think, a little bit scandalous in terms of the prosecutor was that um, (laughs) the prosecutor, he withheld some DNA evidence that misled the court. As a rape case goes, I guess, that tends to be pretty important. He was found to have violated four rules, the four rules of professional um, conduct listed for a prosecutor, 
and listing more than 100 examples of statements that he had made to the media during the course of um, working on the case. With the DNA test, it seems that most of the team um, were asked to provide DNA samples. And then there was really not a match. It's, I guess it says that Naifong falsely reported to the court and to the public that the DNA had only been found from a single male source. But for like multiple male DNAs, right? And none of them matched any of the team players that were tested, right? Yeah, that's how I remember it. And so, um, and there was DNA taken from, I believe, fingernails that were involved in the case too. And the evidence and that was like not conclusive either. And it seems like the prosecutor was just kind of trying to make some statements to kind of support that the lack of conclusions was not unusual and that like lack of evidence is not um, unusual in this type of case. There was some delays in the case, but the DNA experts were kind of, I guess, in opposition to some of the statements that the prosecutor made and the prosecutor just continued making them, then had to go before a bar disciplinary board and he was disbarred. And I think a good place to kind of end that with, because I think it gets to kind of the impact of this, is that after this entire scandal that was cast upon this team and these young men, an anonymous Duke lacrosse player stated to the public, not a month goes by when I am not reminded of the damage those accusations have had on my reputation and the public's perception of my character. Sometimes time can only heal wounds. And I found that really profound. And I guess the last thing I wanted to talk about that's kind of similar in terms of just like what happens to prosecutors when they engage in prosecutorial misconduct, as we learned, is that like they can be disbarred. But it's uncommon, I think, for criminal charges to be pressed against the prosecutor, which I think it's becoming more common, but it seems pretty exceedingly rare. Kayla, you mentioned a case from the Innocence Project earlier, and um, this is also a case from the Innocence Project, and it's it's pretty interesting. So the gentleman who whose life this is about, his name is Michael Morton. He had spent nearly 25 years in prison for the murder of his wife. What happened was in the night in 1986, Mr. Morton had celebrated his birthday at a restaurant with his wife and their three-year-old son. Uh, the next morning. Uh, Mr. Morton had left a note on the bathroom vanity expressing disappointment that his wife had declined to be intimate with him the night prior. As I said, it was his birthday and ended the note with the words, I love you. He then left for work at about 5.30 a.m., arriving soon after at his place of employment. Her body was found in their bed. She had been bludgeoned to death with what appeared to have been a weapon made of wood. The sheets upon which she lay were stained with what was later determined to be semen. He was convicted for the murder of his wife. And here's kind of how the Innocence Project became involved. So in 2005, the Innocence Project and the law firm Rayleigh and Bowick filed a motion requesting additional DNA um, evidence to be tested on items of evidence from the crime scene. The court granted permission to test some of the items, excluding the bloody bandana found near the Morton's house. Once again, the test could not exclude Mr. Morton as the source of DNA collected from the bed. I don't think that's unusual. I mean, it was his house. It was the bed he slept in. It was the bed that he lived in. It was the bed that he, I'm assuming, had you know interacted with his wife in. Previously, they lived together. They were married. Five years later, in 2011, Morton was finally granted testing on the bandana and the hair from the bandana. 
and a DNA testing lab reported that the testing on the bandana revealed both Christine Morton's DNA and DNA of an unknown male. The unknown male DNA profile was run through a databank system and matched a gentleman by the name of Mark Norwood, a convicted felon from California who had a criminal record in Texas and who lived in Texas at the time of Christine Morton's murder. Further investigation by Morton's lawyers and the Travis County District Attorney revealed that a hair from Norwood was also found at the scene of the murder of another, I think, cold case of a woman named Deborah Masters Baker in Travis County. Baker was, um, her cause of death was similar to Christine Morton. She was found bludgeoned to death in her bed. Her murder occurred two years after Miss Morton's death at Mrs. Morton's death. This happened while Michael Morton was in prison. Michael Morton was eventually released in October of 2011 after spending nearly 25 years in prison. He was officially exonerated in December of that same year. During the course of the post-conviction DNA litigation, his attorneys filed a public information act request and finally obtained the other documents showing his innocence in the prosecution's file that had been withheld at his original trial. The Innocence Project filed a brief on his behalf and the Texas Supreme Court ordered an unprecedented court of inquiry to determine whether the prosecutor at the time, who was named Ken Anderson, it's odd in this case and probably, albeit pretty common, Ken Anderson at the time of all of this post-conviction relief, he had gone on to become a judge. So he's a judge when this is all happening. So the court of inquiry was tasked with determining whether Ken Anderson um, had committed prosecutorial misconduct. The court of inquiry ruled there to be probable cause to believe that Mr. Anderson had violated criminal laws by concealing the evidence and charged him with criminal contempt and tampering with the evidence for concealing and withholding the exculpatory information from the trial judge and Morton's defense team. The State Bar of Texas also brought ethics charges against Mr. Anderson in 2013. So that's two years later after most of the post-conviction stuff was kind of taking off and Mr. Morton had been released. The former prosecutor, uh, he entered a plea deal to, or just a, uh, maybe just a plea to criminal contempt, and he agreed to serve a 10-day jail sentence. He, I believe, voluntarily resigned from his position, although I'm sure he was probably pressured to, but he resigned from his position as a district court judge, and he permanently surrendered his law license. I am not sure if he served his full 10 days in jail, but the thing that is um, noteworthy about this case is it is one of the rare occurrences where a former prosecutor actually served jail time and had criminal charges filed against him for withholding evidence at trial. So sad case for Mr. Morton. I'm glad that he finally was given a, a good team of people behind him and eventually released. But uh, And I guess also to the other family that had the cold case answers, I think, came from all of this. Yeah, kind of an unfortunate long, long run with with it. So... Well, I think that each of those stories really exemplify just how critical legal ethics are and how powerful prosecuting attorneys are in our criminal justice system and just how much havoc they can wield, right? If they're if they're not being ethical, thankfully I work with some really good prosecutors, but Same. they're horror Same. stories and um yeah, I I really it's just, appreciate it. It's just interesting the outcome that can happen because I don't think that, that it's not common. And, you know, prosecutorial misconduct is not 
to this extent, it's not common either. And and I wouldn't say that, you know, I think lawyers really do try to do the right thing, but stuff happens. And so this was just an interesting case and and it had an interesting outcome. Just kind of the fun parallel. I mean, not fun, but just the interesting parallel of what had happened um, with Mr. Morton and what had happened to the prosecutor in that period of 25 years. Like one sat in prison waiting for some post-conviction relief and the other went on to become a judge. It's just, I feel like a very insightful look at what can happen and just what did happen. And and I, I just found his story to be really compelling and interesting. So yeah, for sharing it, Addie. I, I hope that everybody enjoyed this little journey that we've gone on into legal ethics. There are so many roles. There are so many interesting stories and cases. Yes. <laughs> yes. Ethics, we've just barely dipped our toes into the pond. On that note, we're going to be dipping our toes into another pond next week. I think our next episode is going to be about forensic science and issues that some types of forensic science have. So we hope that you join us next time. So Addie, you have your drink? I do. Okay. Have a great night, guys. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you.